downhill. This is starting to pick up here. Uh, and so we're at Luke 17, and today we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 19. Remember, Jesus continues on his way, as you see here, toward Jerusalem. Here's what Luke says. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten men with a skin disease, leprosy, approached him. And keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? So where are the other nine? Did none of them return to give glory to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do give you great praise for this morning. We thank you Lord, for the rains that help to nourish this, your creation. And we pray, God, that this morning that your word would also nourish us. Open our eyes to what you would have us to see, that we might see you. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. And amen. Well, earlier this week, as I was thinking about this passage, I was reminded there's actually several passages uh, in Scripture that kind of make a little bit more sense now, kind of after our effects of COVID, than they did uh, beforehand, right? It was a little hard to understand exactly what this would have been like, and certainly we don't understand it wholly now, but uh, now we, we, we know what it's a little bit like to be afraid of people and to have people be afraid of you, afraid that that they're going to make you sick or that you're going to make them sick. I was remembering just within the first couple of months whenever uh, COVID came, so March or so of 2020, um, I was out running along the rail trail. And as I was kind of running along the rail trail here in Zionsville, uh, there was this woman who was on the other side of the path already. And as I got closer to her, she just kind of almost ran as far close as she could to the trees and just kind of put her face away. And and, and I got it, and I got why she did it, but I would be lying if I said it. I wasn't kind of hurt by that, right? Well, you think I'm dangerous, and in some ways, you know, I, I could have been dangerous. Now, of course, she could have been just worried, you know, that she was going to make me sick. So maybe that's what it was, but it's not what it felt like. And so I kind of felt this sense of, hey, I'm not dangerous. I'm just Jerry. And just thinking about, you know, what this would have been like if you were a leper and you kind of lived with this for weeks and months and years where, where people, even those who were close to you, were deathly afraid of you. Of course, it wasn't just that that kind of helped us to understand more perhaps this passage. It's also just the isolation, uh, the loneliness that they would have felt because, of course, they couldn't be near their friends or their family, their community. They were completely separated. And and what we've understood and what COVID has helped us to see is the ill effects of just being isolated 
from others, right? We see that with our kids when they went back to school, and not only were they oftentimes academically somewhat behind, because we as parents were, most of us at least, were not created to be great school teachers. Okay, Megan and I were not created to be good school teachers. But we also, of course, saw just mentally and socially, they struggled. I've heard from many teachers who have talked about just the difficulty, especially of those first year or two of acclimating kids back. And, and there's great research, of course, as well, that just kind of reveals this fact of how much mental health and the struggles that have just kind of skyrocketed because of the fact that we were isolated from one another. We were made for community, and we began to discover just how real that is. Now, in all Truth, even before COVID, we in America struggle with isolation. There was a survey done right before COVID that said nearly 50% of Americans felt like they were isolated and alone. Uh, there's a reason why earlier uh, this year, I believe it was, the Surgeon General uh, kind, of, kind of raised the alarm, if you will, on this sense of isolation. And here's what the Surgeon General said. Given the significant health consequences of loneliness and isolation, we must prioritize building social connection the same way we have prioritized other critical public health issues, such as tobacco, obesity, and substance uh, use disorders. Together we can build a country that's healthier, more resilient, less lonely, and more connected. Craig Barnes says, the truth is that many of us suffer from a leprosy of the soul. And the truth is that many of us here, if we were honest, we wrestle with this sense of isolation and loneliness. While we may not walk the streets screaming out, unclean, keep your distance, unclean, we still wrestle with feelings of being alone. And in the very midst of this isolation, the very midst of this, the lepers make this great, no, this great kind of phrase, Lord, have mercy upon us. It's this desperate but beautiful prayer. Lord, have mercy upon us. And we are told not that Jesus heard them, but that Jesus saw them. You see, there's something remarkable that happens when you are in a place of isolation and loneliness and fear, when you feel like you have been seen. There's a way in which being seen helps to all of a sudden, in many ways, begin to change your perspective when you are isolated and alone. I can remember when I was uh, uh, visiting different colleges. I had one particular weekend when I went to go visit a prospective college, and there were a lot of us that were there. And as I kind of walked around, I didn't know anybody, but everybody else, even those who were just visiting, they seemed to all have friends. And I had to stay in a dorm room with this guy who was just... Uh, it just wasn't normal. It was all strange. And I felt horrible. And I was just, I felt so isolated. And that next day, I was like, this is the worst place ever. What a horrible college. And then at some point, I think it was late in the afternoon, I found somebody else who also was kind of feeling very isolated and alone. And it was remarkable that as we kind of connected, not only did I feel less isolated, but all of a sudden, this college looked much better than it had. Like all of one's perception begins to change when you begin to no longer feel like you are all alone and isolated and afraid. Everything begins to change. And this is what we begin to see 
here with Jesus and these lepers. Because, of course, for them, they are enlivened because Jesus says to them, hey, go show yourself to the priest. And, you know, what that would have meant is that if they went and showed themselves to the priest and that they were healed, then they could immediately go and be with their family and be with their friends and be in their community. Everything changed because they were seen by Jesus. And you could preach a pretty remarkable sermon simply on the fact that they didn't wait until they were healed to go and see the priest. Instead, we are told very explicitly by Luke, as they went, as they were on their way. It is a remarkable story of faith. And if the story ended right there, we would have a multitude of sermons from which to preach. But it did not end right there. No, as we know, it continues on until the one leper. There is this one addition, a a leper who is a Samaritan, which we are only told at the end. He returns to give thanks to Jesus. And when he does, Jesus asks what seems to be a kind of a rhetorical question. Were not ten made clean? So where are the other nine? Before telling him to get on his way and that his faith has made him well. Now one of the things that we oftentimes do when it comes to this is we tend to begin to criticize the other nine disciples. Right? We begin to say, oh, can you believe these guys are so ungrateful they didn't come back? And and, and maybe they should be criticized because clearly Jesus' kind of rhetorical question there seems like there might be a criticism in there. Where are the other nine? But I appreciate what some commentators said. They kind of defended those nine. They said, well, wait, let's just look at these nine for a moment because they did exactly what Jesus told them to do, right? They went to the priest, like Jesus said, and who among us, if we had been away from our friends and our family, would not have gone immediately from the priest right to our friends and family? He never said, come back and tell me thank you. He just said, go. So should we be so critical? Because the truth, of course, is is that they actually have a remarkable amount of faith. Remember, they started marching toward the priest. So it seems to me it's not a question of who has faith or who doesn't have faith. And yet, there is something different that we should probably pay attention to, to this one who returns. Because there is something different about his life. He comes back. He's yelling out loudly, uh, uh, um, um, praising God. He prostrates himself before the Lord. He begins to thank him. And then Jesus says, get up. You have been made well. Now, there's another way to put this. There's a couple other ways. You can also say you have been saved. Or, and I like this, I like the way the King, old King James puts it, that you have been made whole. In other words, there's a sense of after this experience, because of the fact that, that he came back and was thankful, because of the fact that he came back and he began to give praise to God, that there is a beautiful wholeness to him that we don't necessarily see in the others who were healed. I like how Richard Tannehill 
puts this. He says this, The Samaritan shared with the other lepers sufficient faith to respond to Jesus' command in verse 14. But his faith, unlike theirs, has blossomed into joyful praise of God and gratitude to Jesus, who makes God's saving power available. You see, piggybacking off of that, it seems to me that what, when we trust God, there is a beautiful wholeness. There is a, a life of gratitude. There is a life of joy that you begin to experience more so than if you simply just have faith. That these other nines, they certainly seem to have faith, and yet they were not radically changed like this particular Samaritan who all of a sudden had a life of joy and gratitude. Now, Here's probably a part of the reason why I like to look at it like this without disparaging necessarily these nine. I think they had faith. I think they were healed. At the same time, it does seem to me that they were missing out on a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus. And as someone who has kind of been raised in the church, been in the church for nearly half a century... And who has pastored for nearly two decades. When I see this, I see the church. Now, I'm not going to say it's 90% versus 10%. I'm not going to put numbers on it. But there are those who certainly have faith, and I would not question their faith. And yet it might feel a bit more obligatory. It doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of life and joy and thankfulness and, and peace and, and energy around it. It just seems like there's faith. Yeah, we believe. All right, great. But then there is this other portion, maybe 10%, maybe more, maybe less, for whom Faith actually is something that is a part of their whole life. And you it's almost contagious and you can feel the joy and you can feel the energy and you can feel the, just the, the, the excitement about following Jesus. It is clear that Jesus has made a radical difference in their lives. And that doesn't mean that you have to be loud uh, like this particular uh, leper was. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that there is a, oftentimes a palpable difference and what followers of Jesus look like. Now let's also be clear, it's not always one or the other. There is this vast continuum in between. And oftentimes, I have found, even in my own life, you kind of go back and forth. But I suppose one of the ways for us to look at the scripture today, if, even if you get nothing else, is just to ask yourself. Ask yourself. Don't ask about what someone else is like. Ask yourself, where am I? in this kind of continuum of faith? Has, has my life been made whole? And is there this sense of this contagious, almost joy about what it means to follow Jesus? Or am, am I just kind of a, I don't know, a grouchy follower of the Lord? Don't look at somebody because <laughs> they're looking at you. What does that look like? And just to simply ask yourself that question today. Maybe that's the only thing that you need to do. Because there is a connection, it seems to me. One of the things that we notice about people who are joyful about their faith is that they are a people of gratitude. I really like how C.S. Lewis says this. He says this. 
He says, I noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced minds praised most, while cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised the least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Isn't that a great line? Inner health made audible. Like, if we want to know what does it look like on the inside, you don't have to cut anything. You can just listen. What are the kinds of words that are coming out? Are they words of gratefulness, of joy, or are they not? Inner health made audible. I was struck by that this particular week and thinking about what does that look like. I think one of the things it also tells us is that, yes, I, I think you can work on gratitude by kind of saying, okay, I'm going to do a gratitude journal. I'm not saying anything against that. I've done that before. I think that can be really helpful. But at the same time, I think what it also helps us to reveal is that oftentimes a lack of gratitude is coming from a deeper place within us that we might want to examine just a bit more. What is it that allows our inner souls to begin to be transformed so that what is audible is a place of thanksgiving or joy? I think oftentimes, quite frankly, it is a difference between being able to see or being someone who is blind to the places where we see Jesus. I mean, what do you see about this, uh, this one leper? We're told that he sees. He saw that he had been healed. And when he saw he had been healed, immediately he begins to respond. He doesn't kind of keep on what he's doing. No, no, no. He saw it. He slowed down long enough to see it so that then he could return back to the source of his healing, the source of his joy, the source of his gratitude. He simply sees, and this begins to change the way that he lives. Which, of course, then begs the following question, how do we begin to see better? How do we begin to see better? How do we begin to see where God is at work? Remember that God was at work in all ten. But only one of them saw it well enough to know that he then needed to go and to respond in gratitude and joy. What do we need to do? Well, let's think about this. One of the things that David Lowe says, one of the ways that we begin to cultivate ourselves so that we can see Jesus more and the work of Jesus is in worship. And especially I think he's talking here about corporate worship. Here's what David Lowe says. He says, worship is not simply about hearing God's story or even praising God in response. Rather, hearing the story through scripture and sermon and praising through song and gifts is all intended to help us see God at work in our lives and the world. In other words, a part of the reason why we come in here is to begin to help shape us into a people who see where God has been at work. Now, let's be honest. A part of the problem with coming to corporate worship is that it is on Sunday mornings. And there's a lot of other great things that we can do on Sunday mornings. Right? Let's go back to COVID again. I don't know why I'm on a COVID kick right now for some reason. Let's go back to COVID. Those first three months, I probably shared this before. You know, when we shut down, and so I would do my video on Thursday afternoon. Ted Coates did a remarkable job with the video. And then as soon as I can, I can remember, I went back to the office. I was like, ha-ha, three-day weekend. 
And Sunday mornings were glorious. I mean, I just sat there in my jams and some coffee. I would make us some pancakes because what what else did I have to do? And we would just sit there. Then we would watch me, which was kind of weird, but whatever, right? And, and, And sometimes I wouldn't even watch it. And it was incredible. Amen? Who was that? There's a reason why the vast majority of churches, including our own, have far fewer, at least fewer attendance post-COVID than pre-COVID. And and a part of it is because people moved around. We lost some people because of that, and other people came here because of that. But I'm pretty convinced that quite a bit of it is simply the fact that people all of a sudden thought, wow, this Sunday morning thing is not bad. But you see, here's the thing about corporate worship. The thing about corporate worship is this. It, it, what makes it so difficult is it because it interrupts our lives. But what makes it so important is that it interrupts our lives. You see, because the reality is this, that when you just kind of keep going about your life on Sunday morning, and I get it, but, but when you don't put anything in there to interrupt it, then we are easily lost in this stupor that what's around us is all that there is. We're easily lost in the stupor that, well, I'm actually in control of my life. We're easily lost in this kind of stupor that what has always been will always be, and, and let's just kind of go around, and I'm really the most important. We, we, we easily get lost in this, that actually, what's amazing enough, the thing that repels it, repels us many times from going on a Sunday morning is the exact same thing that should actually draw us to it, which is that we need rhythms of interruption in our lives. A life uninterrupted is a life that is not lived well. And so corporate worship is incredibly important in terms of getting us to slow down to remember, oh wait, that's right, there is a God. Where is God in my life? life the second thing and i've talked about this a little bit it's probably again and this is the second time i'm saying it so you guys know i'm having issues which is that as i near half century Brittany, you don't need to say uh-huh like that so strong please it makes me nervous <sighs> i'm thinking a lot more about death and I was just got done reading a book um, called From Strength to Strength by Arthur Brooks. It's a, a very interesting book. Um, uh, it's not a Christian book per se, but he uh, is a follower of Jesus, Arthur Brooks is, and you may have heard of him. And he has this great chapter, and this chapter is called Ponder Your Death. And he says, it's important for us to ponder our death. In fact, he says, once a month, he, he brings up on a Sunday afternoon maybe, you know, not all day, but for a little while, that you should ponder your death, that you should ask yourself these questions. Here they are. Um, if I had one year left in my career and my life, how would I structure this coming month? What would be on my to-do list? What would I choose not to worry about? 
And one of the things that Brooks says is that the problem is, is that when you never ponder your death, you foolishly act as if there will be no end, which means almost inevitably you spend an inordinate and a ridiculous amount of time thinking about a future that may never occur. I was thinking about this, unfortunately, just over the last couple days. The senior pastor at Highland Park Presbyterian Church, which is the, the church where our own pastor Scott was uh, raised up down in Dallas, uh, had, a, had a senior pastor 44 years Oh, this guy was an Adonis. I mean, he was in great shape. There was nothing uh, seemingly wrong with him. Stanford educated, a wonderful preacher, a great leader, a huge church that he was leading. And he died in his sleep. His name was Brian Dunnigan. And as I heard about that, it was on Friday morning that I first heard about that reminded me with great sobriety about just how little any of us actually know about the future. And yet how many of us, when it comes to living life or being a people of gratitude, think, oh, I will, I will slow down to think about this. I will, but I will do it once I'm, I finish this exam or once I've graduated or once I have retired or once my kids get older or once my marriage gets better or once I get everything paid off. But you see, when you ponder the reality of death, it doesn't need to be morbid. It actually is a remarkable spiritual practice because it allows you to say, I am going to look now, today, to see what it is that I can be thankful and joyful about. The Samaritan leper did not sleep and then come back and say something to Jesus. Immediately, he went back and said, thank you and gave God Praise. As the psalmist says, teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Let's just take today, for example, you need to have your life interrupted because I'm here to tell you the likelihood of you thinking about your own death on your own accord is very minimal. But we become a people of joy when we realize our own mortality, when we stop saying when or if, and we begin to look immediately today at those places where God is at work in your life. Now, the final thing, it seems to me, there's many more things, but the last thing that I'll talk about today, because I know that you guys want to go get your biscuits and gravy, is this. It's something we talk about a lot, which is the critical importance of our slowing down. You will never be a grateful person when you are running from one thing to the next. A few months ago, uh, one of our covenant children, this is beautiful, I love it when this happens. One of our covenant children, I said biscuits and gravy, you guys are going to get that biscuits and gravy. I know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> they are going to help out, but... We're just going to watch Greg the whole time that you just kind of head out. So a covenant child who emailed me, she's now in college, and um, 
and she was reading over this book. This book, uh, uh, she has this kind of devotional. It's a book on liturgy. And, and she said, I, I know that you love talking about steady, stable plotting a lot. And here's this liturgy on walking. And she said, so, so here, I'm not going to do the whole prayer. It's still somewhat lengthy. But I, I want you to just hear this part of this liturgy. It says, O oh Lord, I praise you for this body. You have knit to hold me together to carry my heart and mind across plains and pavement. I confess that walking has become so commonplace that I do not often consider the mechanics of this frame that pulls me through life or the specificity of your design. So today, as I walk, keep me mindful of the glorious gift it is to move unfettered through creation Beside the one who made me. Oh God, awaken my senses so I can notice what I once took for granted. The breeze on my face, the tenor of a neighbor's voice, the smell of a meal wafting through windows, the therapy of birdsong. Help me trade efficiency for attention, carelessness for consideration. Show me how your power and gentleness are woven into this world and how not even a crack in the sidewalk has arisen without your say. May my walk turn to worship as I remember that from you and through you and for you are all things, including this street that I tread. Now I wonder if you heard the verbs that were in this particular passage or this particular prayer. To consider, to be mindful, to awaken my senses, to notice. And I emailed her back and I said, thank you for this prayer and that I will be thinking about it as we kind of go off, my daughter, oldest daughter and I, as we go off to do this pilgrimage that I mentioned a few weeks ago that we were going to do. Now, I want to say a few things about this pilgrimage because it seems to me it fits in. I'm not going to talk about it forever. Um, but I do have some slides here for the next hour and a half I want you to see. Not really, but I do have, I, I do have some pictures like this one here of... Uh, Shaughnessy, my oldest, kind of walking as we walked into a fog. One of the biggest differences, it seems to me, between hiking and pilgrimage is the intentionality. Much like this prayer was saying, this intentionality with which we do it, to, to consider, to awaken our senses. It is um, to walk long distances while considering and being mindful and noticing and there were many gifts to this, this week long that I had with my daughter in southern Germany. There were many gifts, much of this, of course, of being with my, my daughter, but I'm, I'm out of respect for her. I won't talk about that too much. But one was this, to simply create space hour after hour, day after day, walking with remarkable intentionality. We had times of silence, 
We had times of laughter. We had times of deep conversation. We had times of shallow conversation. We had times of listening to quiet worship music. We had times to say a morning prayer, a midday prayer, and an evening prayer. We had times of stopping at these various crosses. And in those moments, this was Shaughnessy's idea, to think about something to be grateful for. We had times of stopping in these uh, beautiful churches, one of those that you can see uh, right here, where each time we would go down and we would, uh, the greatest feeling uh, I would love to tell you was seeing this beautiful church, the greatest feeling was taking that stupid backpack off of our backs and sitting down in these pews and just focusing on what was around us. We felt the distance. It's funny, I, I made a mistake uh, one time, I made many mistakes, but one of the mistakes I made on this pilgrimage was that I had, us, uh, I had our hotel where we stayed three miles short of where it was supposed to be. Now, if you're driving in a car and you're like, oh, it's three hours shorter than I thought, you think to yourself, who cares? But because of the fact that it was three miles short, it meant that the next day we had to go 18 miles instead of 15 miles. You don't feel that distance in a car. You feel the distance on your legs and your back. And so we began to feel the distance. We felt the path underneath us, whether it was asphalt or whether it were leaves or gravel or dirt. We felt the sun on our faces. We felt the sleet ricocheting off of our bodies. We felt the weight of Every single thing we were carrying, there were no wheels to this. We smelled. We smelled the bakeries. We smelled the horses and the cows. We smelled the piles of manure. And we smelled ourselves at the end of each day especially since I forgot to bring deodorant. <laughs> I still smell like lilac, which is my daughter's deodorant. <sighs> we listened intently. We heard a language that is not our own. We heard the church bells ringing we heard the stamps that were stamped on this paper that we had. Every single kind of segment where we would go, there would be this beautiful sound of the stamp that said, this is where you are, this is what you have achieved today. We tasted. We tasted foods that we don't normally eat and that quite honestly we'll be okay not eating again for a while. We tasted gelato that we wish we could have tasted a lot more of. And we saw. I posted about this. One of the most remarkable things that I think we saw throughout this were pathways like these that seem to have no end. As you see these, there was always this sense of never knowing exactly where things would go or when they would end, but of simply the sense that what you do is you take one step after another. And of course, we saw remarkable mountains, these Alps, whose beauty simply could not be described. One of the things I love is this particular slide as we were walking, these two chairs were just set up right there. 
there was a sense that clearly somebody had been there. It was an invitation to do exactly what I have been saying, which was an invitation to slow down, to sit, and to look, and to listen, and to smell all that was around us. Now, let me be clear. It's not that we came back and all of a sudden when we did, everything was different and Shawnee and I are just skipping around and we've never seen any, any dark times and everything is just unicorns and rainbows. But there is something that happens when you begin to intentionally take a week, which I understand not everyone can do, but when you begin to walk with a sense of intentionality, when you begin to walk and you ask for your senses to be awakened because you begin to see things you would not have otherwise seen. It is simply to cultivate an awareness of what is around you and of the ways in which God has been at as we see with those ten lepers, it is not whether or not, again, God is at work. It is whether we have the ability to see it. Let me be clear. It doesn't mean that there is no longer any isolation. It doesn't mean that life is always rosy. There is still brokenness and pain in our life and in our world. But it does mean that even in the midst of those challenges, we are never overcome by them. Because again, as that 23rd Psalm says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And if you wrestle and you feel like I'm someone who has faith and yet I struggle with having any joy, I struggle with having a life of wholeness and gratitude, then let me encourage you, A, you're not alone, and B, it does not have to be that way. Our eyes can be trained. Our hearts can be changed when we begin to pay attention. And slowly, over time, our lives will become marked by a joy and a gratitude from knowing that we see a God who sees and loves us. For Christ and for Christ's kingdom. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. Let's pray. God, it is easy for us to lose sight of the simplest of things. And so we pray that you would help us to see. Help us to see, God, where you are at work. Help us to see in those small ways, Lord, in our walks and in our journey. To not have to feel like we need to pretend this, Lord, to fake it in any way. But to ask you to simply open up our eyes. That in so doing, might our hearts begin to be full of joy and thankfulness. Knowing that it is out of our hearts 
that gratitude erupts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.